You're listening to episode 214, Communicate Like a Buddhist with Cynthia Kane. Um, and the other piece is learning how to move, like move the sensation and the want and the desire to interact in the way that you have been to the side in the moment so that you can interact in the way that you want to. This is the Dance of Life. My name is Tudor Alexander, and we are going to go on a journey to hack your mind, body, and soul for living your best life yet. Tune in every week to learn something new, grow, and get inspired as we discover the secrets of success and practice the art of fulfillment. And if it's one thing I hope you learn from today, it's that your life is a dance. And just like any dance, you can learn to dance it well. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for being here. My name is Tudor Alexander, and I am your host, for another episode of The Dance of Life. That's right, your life is a dance. It's a complex choreography, and it's moving to the rhythm, to the music of life's endless changes, learning to dance it well and make good decisions to adapt when the music changes. That's what it's all about. Today's quote is a common one you've probably heard. I don't know who quoted this, but it says, happiness is an inside job. And as far as I could tell, it was anonymous, but I'm sure somebody said it at some point or another. But, you know, it's a catchy little quote, and it's pretty common. But really, it's so important and so true. At the end of the day, we are the only ones that can make ourselves happy. It's our own responsibility, and that extends to every aspect of your life. Being present, being in the moment, being happy, extends to your health, extends to your relationships, extends to your finances, every aspect that's important comes back to this simple inside job. And our guest today, my inspiring guest, is going to help us with that inside job. Her name is Cynthia Kane. She's a meditation and communication expert. Cynthia's work has been appeared in numerous publications, including the Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Yoga Journal, Self Magazine, Women's Day Magazine, and she guides students to living a more mindful life through her Kane Intentional Communication Method program. She's written three best-selling books, including How to Talk to Yourself Like a Buddhist, How to Meditate Like a Buddhist, and How to Communicate Like a Buddhist. And she's taught over 50,000 people how to meditate and live a more mindful life. You can follow Cynthia or get in touch with her at CynthiaKane.com. That's spelled C-Y-N-T-H-I-A-K-A-N-E.com. You know, today we're going to be talking about mindfulness and communication, really two very important things. And they're very related, actually. I never thought of them as related until this episode, but they're actually very, very related. You know, without mindfulness, we cannot communicate effectively. And Cindy's going to share her wisdom uh, from being an experienced yoga teacher, being an experienced meditation, you know, all these things that she's been doing for over the last years, brought into a comprehensive topic, a comprehensive strategy on how to communicate effectively, sidestepping your emotions, how to meditate, how to enjoy your life more, how to bring mindfulness to what you do. And all these things that are so difficult to do, they seem so simple, 
but they're really, they're really not easy. It's a life's practice. So I'm super excited to share all of the golden nuggets. If you're struggling, if you're struggling with mindfulness, if you're feeling stressed out, if you're feeling burned out, if you know anybody that's also in that same position, share this episode with them because we're going to be getting into really some profound and timeless stuff in this. I love talking about this kind of stuff and it is one of the most interesting things. You know, we've gotten so far away from this timeless wisdom. Today we're so obsessed with Facebook and Instagram and likes and social media and algorithms and what's happening in politics, but all that stuff is meaningless because it's constantly changing. When you focus on the things that are timeless and you really develop your mastery of those, that's when you're really growing in life. So I'm really excited to share this kind of timeless information with you. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you share it with somebody in your life that's important to you that could really get something out of this message. Here we go. Communicate like a Buddhist with Cynthia Kane. Let's do it. What, uh, where are you at right now? Are you, uh, you're in the States, right? You live in the United States? Yeah. Yep. I'm in Washington, D.C. Oh, wow. Where all the craziness is happening, huh? <laughs> yes. Right here, right now. Yes. Wow. That's crazy. And where are you? I'm in Arizona. So definitely my, uh, Northern Lights background is, is not, it's not <laughs> happening here, but <laughs> one day, that's one of my goals. I, I want to go to the Nor- Northern Lights and, uh, and just, chill out that my one of my friends used to live in alaska and mm. he would tell me all like he actually went recently and man it's just so beautiful up there i would love to that's that's my bucket list to go so that in hawaii yeah. i rotate between this one and a hawaii one so <laughs> they they both give off the same feeling right yeah i like something Last. that moves you know mm-hmm. that relaxes that's you know just chill out. It's, it's uh, learning to chill out, right? That's what we're talking about today. Mindfulness and learning to chill the hell out. <laughs> yeah. Yep. 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 I think people need to learn to chill out. I mean, it's especially nowadays, it's like we, we get so caught up with, um, with all the, the who, what, where, when, how, you know, and it's like really all that stuff is secondary. The most important thing in the world is just to learn to be present. Yeah. To be mindful. Mm-hmm. that's the one skill I've found that extends to everything in life. If you can practice being mindful, right? Yeah. It makes, it makes life so much easier when now, we can just access the present moment. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's and it's a constant practice too, right? I mean, it's uh, you, you have to, it's always changing. The present moment's always changing, but it's always here. So it's always so easy every moment to get distracted by something whether it's the future, something you're worrying about that hasn't happened yet, something that, uh, you know, it's in your past, whatever that happened yesterday and you're obsessed mm-hmm. about it. It's a constant practice. How, how have you, what have you found to be the most useful thing for you and your practice to be present, to be here in the now and to remember that truth of, Hey, this is all there is right here, right now. Yeah. That's all there really is. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think the, this is all there really is for me is, and it might sound a little morbid, but I am aware of death every day. Yeah. Um, just from, you know, kind of what brought me into this path is losing my first love and that. So it, it's, it's almost every day. I'm just reminded that I am here um, and that he is not and others that I love are not right. 
um, and that I really want to find a way to suffer less throughout the time that I am here. And so during the day, I think for me, it's more when I notice um, that I am distracted or that I am caught up or that I am clinging to things or that I am forcing things or wanting certain things to be a certain way and they're not that way and kind of fighting with reality that I use that as my moment to be aware that, okay, I am not here right now. What do and you then think? come back to oh. the present moment. You know, you met, you brought up the idea of suffering and I think that's such a, such a good topic to talk about because I mean, especially you've written three best-selling books, uh, mm -hmm. you know, with the, with the Buddhism thing. Are you Buddhist by the way? Mm -hmm. Well, I practice, I wouldn't say that I, I wouldn't say that I'm Buddhist, but I practice Buddhism. I don't like to categorize myself as I guess any one thing, but Buddhism to me is the philosophy that I live by, but I haven't yeah. taken, um, like I haven't taken vows. So that's why I wouldn't really call myself a Buddhist. Gotcha. Um, well, yeah, I, I'm a big fan too. I mean, I, I'm not a Buddhist either, but I, I find a lot of wisdom in the, the Eastern traditions and, and sort of the Zen approach to life. And I've certainly tried to implement that in, in my life growing up in the Western go, go, go masculine, you know, like yeah. chase it down and, and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, it's, I think that that world predisposes you to a lot of suffering because essentially there's that whole problem of desire and then chasing and constantly having something outside of yourself that you need more of, whether it's more personal growth. I mean, personal growth can become a trap. Yes. Uh, you know, that you're always searching for some new level. And it's like, dude, you know, the difference between you and your best self is infinite. So it doesn't matter if you stop right now, <laughs> like, mm -hmm. stop as mother roses, it's not going to change anything. So, um, you know, what's your take on suffering? I guess what, you know, what has been, you, you went through something, very terrible, which is the loss of somebody that, that you really loved. And that's certainly one of the biggest things that we suffer from in life, whether it's family, you know, a, a person that we love and romantic situation. And that's a big, that's a big life lesson. So what is your take on suffering now? Like, how do you approach it? How do you teach other people about it? You know? Yeah. So, I mean, the way I see suffering now is that it, it isn't something to avoid or push away. I think before, I think it's also the definition of suffering. I mean, suffering can be, you know, really any discomfort. It can be anxiety, it can be stress, it can be overwhelm, it can be um, anything that you're sitting in for a long time, right? Because it's different than pain because pain is temporary, but suffering, it just, it's constant. Um, it's this constant state of just uh, lack, discomfort, and, um, and I think that before I would try to pretend that it didn't exist, um, I try to be more positive if I could be right. Um, and now I'm just so aware that it does exist, right? It is the Buddhist philosophy of suffering exists. Um, and that when I try to push it away or I try to, prevent it, it increases, my suffering increases. Um, and so what I really teach is being aware of it, seeing it, softening to it, right? Allowing it um, to be there 
so that you can become kind of friendly with the pain, with the emotion, with whatever it is that is causing um, this discomfort so that you can change your relationship to the suffering. You can change your relationship to it so it no longer becomes something that prevents you um, from moving in the direction maybe that you want to be going or with enjoying your time, but instead it becomes what actually uh, makes that a possibility, right? You know, with your um, first relationship and everything that happened, what would you say really helped you get through that? I mean, how, how, how did you get through it? Something mm-hmm. like that happening? Yeah. So I, um, I, I really believe that when I found, so when I found Buddhism and I found meditation, was that after, by the way, after that happened or yeah, okay. it was after yeah. that happened. So it was in 2011, 2012, 2011, it was 2011. Um, when I found like Buddhist practices, when I found meditation, um, that was really how, how things um, moved forward for me. Um, It was really the first time that I ever really sat with myself and let myself be okay with feeling so much emotion, right? With Mm -hmm. feeling that suffering, like with feeling, with feeling the ups and downs of being human, right? In that moment of feeling so much heartache and sadness. And then, you know, sometimes I would be feeling so much joy and then feeling bad that I was feeling joyful and then feeling guilty that I was feeling excited, you know? And so it was a really wonderful space where I could just see everything, where I could just witness myself feeling and not judging it, right? Not making it mean more, or making it mean less and making myself mean more or mean less. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it was really meditation, I feel. And um, the elements of right speech for me were really important in kind of moving me through because what I found was when I had kind of a guideline to move forward with, it made it much easier for me to be in the present moment and to, um, to like enjoy, enjoy myself. Cause so much of learning how to, you know, speak to others in a kind, honest and helpful way is really learning how to speak to yourself in that way first. And, um, that changed everything for me. Um, it moved me through the grief and the, um, just the anxiety that I had and the fear and the, like all the questions that I had, you know, the why questions and really learning, you know, uh, there's the four imponderables in Buddhism. And, you know, one of them is just not to ask the questions of, you know, why people are the way they are, why things happen the way that they happen, because it will just lead to madness. And knowing those, um, you know, those types of uh, like that wisdom, I guess, was so helpful for me in these moments to be able to loosen my grip and and detach a little more from becoming the emotion. That's great. I didn't. Hear, I've never heard about the four imponderables. It's called the four imponderables. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah they're it's they're interesting. I mean, the idea is that there are four questions that you just 
don't ask because they will lead to madness. And um, one is about meditation and just, you know, questioning how far you can reach in meditation. Um, another is around why people are the way that they are, why things are the way that they are. Another is around the world, um, you know, just the how it came to be, you know, that type of thing. And then the fourth one is around, um, I want to say it's the mind, but I don't remember 100%. So I'm not going to go there. But yeah. it's it's fascinating to look up if you're interested in. I, I definitely want to look it up. I mean, there's so many, so many wise teachings that have been around for so many thousands of years. It's yeah. like people... You know, we have a lot of fancy gadgets today, but spiritually, I mean, I think <laughs> a lot of people figured it out a long time ago. They were so advanced. Yeah. Uh, and it's just crazy because when you see these these philosophies, these teachings, it's like, wow, you know, like how much time do they have too, also to spend in nature and to observe things and to, you know, just ask questions. Whereas today we're kind of, I think, distracted from that conversation, distracted yeah. from that process. And so... Mm-hmm. Spirit, we've evolved technologically, but spiritually we're evolving slower in, a, in some sense because you don't have a lot of time to really integrate, to integrate mm-hmm. all the lessons. Yeah. yeah I you, agree with that. I, I definitely think they're, they spent way more time in nature than we all do. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it's, it's interesting because every time you go out, I mean, at least I, I'll take a walk every day in some form or fashion, and uh, it, it never ceases to amaze me. There's always some... Yeah some little lesson, you know, I mean, it's just, there's always something you can look at something orderly, some dualistic process going on, some, you know, little mm-hmm. bug doing its thing. And it's just like, wow, it just yeah. reminds you of your, your own life in some way. It kind of gives mm-hmm. you that, that grounding. So yeah. you mentioned something, which I also think is important for meditation and mindfulness, which is this idea of meaninglessness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's, I think a lot of people get uneasy with the idea of meaninglessness in the sense that if the world is meaningless, then now that means it's hopeless, you know? So it's like they get stuck in this loop of, you know, not being able to see basically that it doesn't mean anything that it's meaningless. Like that's just the default canvas. So how do you, how do you approach that in Mm -hmm. teaching people and helping them find nothing and helping them find that meaninglessness? Yeah. So I like to talk about it in the way of seeing what is, right? Um, seeing clearly um, in that, you know, I um, I tell this story a lot about there's a, a meditation, a student in meditation, and afterwards he goes to the teacher and the teacher says, you know, how is the meditation for you? And the teacher says, or and the student says, you know, my jaw it hurt. And I started to think about how maybe I have a root canal and then I need to make an appointment at the dentist. And then the dentist, I don't have dental insurance. And so that's going to cost me a lot. And do I have the money for that? Because I haven't, you know, been working as much as I have been. And like, you know, he goes on and the meditation teacher says, so your jaw hurt, right? So that's, that's what I think of when we're talking about putting it in the context, right, Mm -hmm. of making something mean 
something, you can make something mean something good. You can make something mean something bad. Um, but none of that is truth. What is truth is just what the experience is, right? Like what, what actually happened in that experience. Um, and if you can focus on the direct experience, if you can just focus on what happened, then you can talk to it, right? Um, very clearly and consciously and concisely because you're not um, swayed by the emotion of it, right? Um, by your creation of what it could be or what it might be or what it is or what it isn't. Um, and, you know, I think uh, Pema Chodron, she, um, I was listening to her the other day and she said this beautiful bit about how, you know, you can wake up and be lying in your bed and you hear the rain falling on you know, the roof and it's so cozy and you're like, oh, that's so beautiful. That's so wonderful. And then, you know, someone somewhere else, they wake up and it's their wedding day and mm -hmm. the rain to them could be terrible, you know, <laughs> terrible, but nothing has changed. It's just rain. Mm -hmm. And so when I talk with students about meaninglessness, that's the context that I put it in because I think it's, it's easier um, to digest that way, then if, if nothing has meaning, then that might mean that I have no meaning and right. You can get into a lot of, a lot of that, but really truly what it is, is that without meaning, we get to the good stuff. Like without meaning, you get to experience, um, I mean, you get to experience what is, hmm. and that is, um, like, that's now, <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's crazy. I mean, it's, uh, you know, we get so wrapped up in that next moment all yeah. the time, you know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, when you, when you get to see that really it's all there is, is right in front of you and it's, Oh, I'm in a new moment. I've never been here before. That's cool. Yeah. And you really get that. It's like, Holy smokes. Like this is all just some game that we're in some sort of, you know, simulation. I don't know, but it's, it's mm -hmm. definitely so strange. I, the one thing that's still so strange to me is just simply that things change. Yeah. You know, like it's so strange if you really think about it, if you really get down to it, like the fact that everything's changing, always moving, never standing still. That's a really strange thing. You know, yeah. you would, you would think that things wouldn't do that. <laughs> yeah. But they've been changing. I mean, the minute that we're born, everything you know like yeah you go through all of these changes and i was um oh i wish i remember who said it but there's a, a like a master of some tradition who said that um what is real does not change and i was listening to a talk it was with deepak chopra and he was mentioning or maybe it was Wayne Dyer, but one of them was mentioning how you can look at pictures of yourself from all different ages and you look completely different. So what is, what is real is that which does not change. Right. And so what is real is, is the moments, right. What is real is what is within. And I think that's, it's fascinating when you start to pay attention to this idea of um, everything changes, but the, but there has got to be something that remains, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, for me, it's, it's that awareness, right? Cause really when you look at, when you try when you go down the rabbit hole of who am I, like, mm-hmm. what am I? Yeah. I mean, that's a slippery slope because there's, a, there's, you're always changing. Like there's no part of you that's ever the same, but obviously you have some sense of permanence. So there's something there that isn't changing and there's yeah. something there that can detach from the emotions, detach from the whatever feeling you have and observe it neutrally. So that essence, whatever that is, whatever mm-hmm. you want to call it, that is who you really are. Yeah. And uh, I mean, is there anything on a regular basis that you do that helps you find that and connect to it? Mm-hmm. Dancing. Dancing? Really? Like <laughs> nice. Movement. What kind of dancing? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I just move. So yeah. there's... Um, just like interpretive like, dance or... Yeah, it's just like... Um, right now I've become really uh, in love with The Five Secrets by Beethoven. Um, and I put that on and that is how I feel like I connect to that that is within me yeah whatever that is to be named um but i truly feel connected in that moment um to something greater yeah um and and then also i mean and then in meditation as well right i connect um to kind of like that emptiness within Mm -hmm. um so i would say that those those two are the forms that I, I find that I'm able to connect to that space. That what, do, what, do you, what do you think are some of the biggest like misconceptions about meditation and for most people? Yeah. So I think that um, one of the biggest misconceptions is that um, you have to like, you have to have gone to India or you have to, like be at a retreat center, you have to be taught by, you know, a guru or you have to wear a sheet. Um, I think that's one of the misconceptions, right? Um, that it's unattainable, that it's not something that um, is easily accessible. It's not for regular, not for regular folks, pretty much. Right. Not for regular people. Right. Yeah. Um, and I also think that along with that, the, a lot of people who feel that they are like type A people will think that it's not for them either because they don't want to Zen out all the time. And it's, you know, when you get into it, it's not really about Zenning out all the time. Um, it can actually, for those people who are type A people who like to be productive, it can actually make you more efficient. It can enhance what is already um, like a strength for you, right? Um, it will just make it easier for you not to feel so overwhelmed while you're doing it. Um, so I think one misconception is that it's not uh, for regular people. Um, and then I also, um, I think that um, another misconception is that you have to stop thinking, right? That it's about quieting your mind, Um and that's not really what it's about. It's about seeing all of the activity, right, in your mind and 
that thoughts are okay. Thoughts are actually beautiful and something to celebrate in meditation because that's how you get to train your brain, really, um, to see the distraction, to see that you're not here, to see that you're caught up. And then it's like, oh, thanks so much. Thanks so much for sharing. But I'm just going to come back to this present moment right now that I'm in. Um, so I think that's another big one is that people believe they have to stop thinking or that they shouldn't have thoughts. Um, and that's not, that's not true. That's, that's interesting because especially with the first one that you mentioned with, uh, feeling like you have to have special training or be in a special event, I, I kind of find that in a related way, religion is somewhat the same thing too. Like there's a sense that you have to be in a building to be connected to something higher and uh it's really just an extension of our feeling that there's only something external right that we have to connect to as opposed to it's right here all along you're yeah in in you Mm -hmm. um in your own meditation practice you know there's there's a point where i don't know if you can remember it but i'm just curious there's a point where you finally get it you know that when you you get nothing right so you get that nothing (laughs) Uh, you know, what was that point for you and what happened? How, you know, if you can remember it at all, or maybe a time in your life when it, when it happened and what happened? Yeah. Um, so I, it actually, when I got it, I was, I was in Arizona. Oh, nice. Um, there we go. Yeah. So I, um, I was out there with, they're no longer there, the McLean Meditation Institute. They moved out to California Um, and I was there for an intensive and that's where I was certified as a meditation and mindfulness instructor. And I remember, um, I mean, we were in just, you know, like a conference room and I remember sitting and we were partnered up and I was being led in a meditation and it was the first time where I felt how do I explain it it was like um I felt it's like I just felt empty Mm -hmm. um and there was nothing happening nothing was happening. <laughs> and, um, Sounds nice. It was. And then from that moment afterwards, I was able to connect to that place. Once I had found it, I was able to connect to it each time that I would sit for meditating. Though if, um, it, what happens for me though, is that I have, you know, like the first five, seven minutes of meditation for me are thoughts, 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 yeah. thoughts. There they are, there they are. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then it's once I get to that like eight minute mark, then I'm I'm in. I can drop in. But um How long do you meditate? It's a really for? odd feeling. Go ahead. How long do you meditate for usually? So I meditate for twenty minutes. Twenty minutes. And you mm-hmm. do that once a day, a couple times a day? So I used to do it two times a day. Yeah. Now I only do it once a day. Um and that's based solely on like schedule changes, two kids, all of that. Um, so, do you time yourself? Like, how does that work? I mean, if you're in this meditative state, 
do you just have like a timer that <laughs> kind of zings you out of it? Like what I do. Yeah. Do? So I use, so I use insight timer. I don't know. Oh, if okay. Yeah. I've got, um, I've got some but, stuff on there. Yeah. So I use insight timer and I just use the timer on there and I set it for 20 minutes mm-hmm. and I have it at intervals. You can set um, time intervals. So I have one to begin, um, you know, a bell to begin a bell, um, after 10 minutes and then about at the end. What do you think about these apps like Insight Timer and Calm and, you know, what I, I'm sure there's a few others, but what do you think about them? Do you think the future of mindfulness is, is uh, integrating with technology? I, I do believe that that is what's happening um, just based off of what we're seeing. I, you know, so I, I appreciate apps like insight timer, um, especially for those who are just starting this practice. Um, because I think it gives them an opportunity to see that meditation doesn't have to look like just one thing. And I think it's important for people to find meditations that work for them. Um, and you know, with students that I work with, I end up like prescribing meditations, specific meditations for what people um, are working with in those moments. So I think, it, I think it's great because it gives people a lot of different, uh, a variety. Um, I, I also believe that, um, it's something that can distract us as well. Right. Um, and sometimes it's really important to just be without an app to do the work, right? To do the practice um, without being guided. I think, you know, I often tell my students that there, there is going to become a time where your voice, you want to listen to your voice more than anybody else's voice. And that is the time where you give up the apps, where you give up the guided meditations and you just use a timer, right? Um, I do, I do not agree, I would say, with apps that are um, like, you know, you meditate for five minutes, then you, you're trying to get to 10 minutes, then you're trying to get to 15, then you're trying to get to 20. Then, like because a competition I don't be- pretty much, yeah. Yeah, like I don't, I don't believe that the goal of meditation is to become a good meditator or like to meditate mm. for long periods of time. I think um, the goal of meditation is is really to like be with oneself and for however long that you can sit and you can be in this moment, that is plenty. Right. Um, so that's the only issue I take with some of the apps and things that are coming out now is that it's like, how do you become like a great meditator? How do you become the most mindful or, you know, that to me just is the Western spin of progress on it. (laughs) Yeah. That, that to me is actually not mindfulness. That to me is not, um, you know, so yeah. Yeah. It's taking, <laughs> it's taking you out of mindfulness because your mind is always on that next goal. Right. And what we were talking about in the beginning, what you had mentioned, right. Being, becoming attached to a spiritual practice. Yeah. Um, you know, I've had a lot of students who have to unlearn their, the practices that they've been doing because they are so, um, they feel obligated to, do a certain amount, reach a certain goal, get to a certain place with it. And 
it's like there's no place for you to reach, right? I mean, the place to reach is maybe that place of nothingness or that place of like being in that in that state, right? Um, but that's not why you sit. If that makes sense. Yeah, I know. I love that. I love that just that little phrase of it. The goal of meditation is not to be a good meditator. <laughs> that's awesome. I love that. If you if somebody were starting off, let's say they're a beginner, what would you say would be kind of the one mindfulness exercise that they could just focus on just to get started? Like how would somebody jump into, they, you know, they're feeling stressed out. They, they haven't really, they don't even, they kind of know what mindfulness is, but they've never really touched on it. Mm-hmm. How would, how would they go about starting it? Yeah. So I think that, um, so, so mindfulness practices or meditation, because I see them as different. I see meditation as the formal practice of mindfulness. Okay. But so are you, you're asking more of like day to day, what you can do. Yeah, daily? that's, that's good. That's a good point. I, I would say, what would you do day to day more? I'm looking more like sensitivity, mindfulness, kind of being more present in general, I guess, because mm-hmm. meditation, you know, there's a lot of things to, to get into that are obvious, yeah. like programs and teachers mm-hmm. and things like this. But I guess my question is more about the things that are not obvious because mindfulness is really like this quality, right? So it's a yeah. quality and it's, it's a non-obvious quality. So how, how would somebody, what would be the one thing or how would they get started to get more mindful? <laughs> yeah. So I love the idea of picking something that you do every day mm. um, a lot, right? Something that you do a lot of every day. Um, so that can be, um, you know, pouring yourself some water, that can be maybe cleaning up your counters. That could be loading the laundry. That could be, um, you know, reaching for a paper towel, um, opening your car door, turning on your computer, right? Starting to think of the things that you do a lot during the day and picking one. And every time you go to do that movement, to slow down, to pay attention to it, so for example, for me, it's when I, um, when I use a paper towel, when I go to like rip off a paper towel, I slow down and I pay attention to the way that the texture is in my hands. I pay att- attention to the sound it makes when I rip the paper towel. I pay attention to um, like the weight of the paper towel and I slow my actions down and just put my attention on what it is that I'm doing. That to me is a great way during the day to remind myself of being here, of being present, right? Um, and I think it's easy to connect with because um, it's hard. I think it's hard for people in the beginning to be able to say, okay, well, when you notice that you're feeling rushed or, rushed or you notice that you're really tense, just see if you can like relax your shoulders, relax your body, right? But physical objects, visual objects are really important. Um, so picking one thing that you do often, slowing down, paying attention to how it feels, the movement, um, the weight, the texture, right, um, is a good way to begin. Another is just in those moments where you're feeling overwhelmed or stressed and you know those moments, right, because you can feel it in the body or like what happens within your head to just close your eyes 
for even just 30 seconds, just close your eyes, open them, and that will give you a, you know, a different lens to look through. It's super quick. Same thing, you can always close your eyes and just do like a 30 second body scan, just going from your head to your you know, shoulders, down to your feet, and just telling your body to relax. Just scanning, seeing where there's tension, inhaling into those areas, exhaling, you know, um, just to remind yourself of the moment that you're in. That's great. I mean, it's, it's like the simple things that you do every day are the ones that make the biggest difference. You know, we want all these complicated answers, but yeah, it's really the, the simple things, but they're not really that simple because you have to do them every day. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's where the, I guess the, the challenge is, is in that consistency. Do you find well, anything that helps you with, with being consistent? So the, I think the intention in the morning is really important. Um, for me, I like to set the intention for like how I want to be interacting during the day or how I want to feel during the day. Um, and that's constantly what I come back to in that if I notice that I'm out of that, that's, that's me being able to say, okay, I'm out of alignment with the way that I was wanting to show up for today. I'm going to begin again. Right. Um, and also it's remembering for me, it's remembering how I want to feel, um, that makes it easy for me to slow down and really be intentional and pay attention to what it is that I'm doing because I, I feel so much better when I'm in the moment if I am stuck over here, I am like in anxiety mode and that's not how I want to feel. And so for me, it's really important to remember that. You wrote a book called Communicate Like a Buddhist, which I really like that title. What, where did you come up with that title? Like, what does that mean? So I, so I came up with the title because that was how I started figuring out how to enjoy my time here. Um, when I was introduced to meditation in Buddhism, um, that was really what I was, when I was trying to find this way of feeling better, what I was looking at and understanding from all that I was reading and, you know, courses and things like that was that communication was really important. If I wanted to change how I was engaging with the world, I was going to have to change how I engaged with others and with myself. And when I learned the elements of right speech in Buddhism, that to me was like the doorway. And then it became okay. Um, you know, use helpful language, don't gossip, don't exaggerate and, you know, tell the truth. Those are phenomenal in theory, but how, like, that's how like the four I, agreements kind of, right? Yeah. They're similar to the four agreements. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and for me, the, um, the question became, well, how do I actually begin to speak in this way? Like, how do I speak in a kind, honest, and helpful way? Um, And so that was how this kind of lifestyle experiment really began of how to do it. And so 
that's where how to communicate like a Buddhist came from is this practice that I created to be able to speak in that way, which was first to listen to yourself, then to learn how to listen to others, to speak consciously, clearly, and concisely, and to use silence as a part of speech and meditation. But so how to communicate like a Buddhist came out of this idea of, okay, well, how do I actually do this? How do I actually communicate like a Buddhist communicates? Um, and that is what really led me on this path. What was the hardest thing for you to, um, I guess, change about your communication or learn? Yeah. So I think the hardest thing, um, well, it's a really good question. I think when I first began to realize how um, hurtful I can be toward myself, Mm. Um, that was really, that was really hard, um, because I had to get very honest with myself and how I can play the victim and how I can, um, you know, be very passive aggressive and how I can, um, be very hurtful. And it was really hard for me to see that in myself because, you know, I want to think I'm perfect. I want to think I have it all together. I want to think I, um, I've got it all down. And I mean, I didn't know, you know, I didn't really know I was all those things until I started really paying attention and looking. And that was really hard for me. It was hard for me to see it and not get even more angry at myself or more judgmental of myself. Um, so it was hard to change the relationship I had with myself. So the listening part um, to change the relationship to the negative self-talk. So the negative self-talk, instead of it becoming what I chose to believe, it became something that um, acted more as a cue for me to see, okay, I'm, I want to be kinder to myself here. I want to be more helpful to myself. I want to make this easier for myself. And that was, that was difficult, right? Um, and the other piece is learning how to move like move the sensation and the want and the desire to interact in the way that you have been to the side in the moment so that you can interact in the way that you want to. Right. Um, and that's why it's a practice. It's a practice of communicating uh, because it's not something you ever master. It's something that you are continually, you know, you're continually moving, you're continually aware of, you're continually um, kind of finding the ways to slow down to make it easier to live alongside the emotion so that the emotion no longer dictates how you interact. That's, that's a huge one because, I mean, honestly, being able to communicate without emotions in the sense of like negative emotions, obviously, because uh, your emotions are a double-edged blade. They're very powerful and there could be yeah. very useful for, for really important situations when you need to inspire other people or when you need to, you know, really express something. But it comes with the cost of, you know, most of the time we get shameful, guilty, angry, worried, whatever else, right? So how do you, let's, you know, give me an example of like a, a tough situation either in your in your life or maybe you, you coach somebody through it where they had to communicate something and there was, you know, there's like, there's an emotion there, obviously. And it's like, how do you, how do you get past that in the moment? I mean, that's, that's the ultimate question, right? It's just being yeah. able to sidestep that, that instinctual loop almost 
uh, and make a different choice. Because if you can make a different choice the first time, it gets a little tiny bit easier next time. But mm-hmm. it's making that first choice that is so hard. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, um, okay, I'm going to give two examples. One is you're in the moment, right? And your partner says something to you that really bothers you. Um, and maybe they say, you know, um, when, like, uh, the next time that you um, are going to take out the trash, could you, um, could you remember to put the bag in the next time? Like, you know, refill the bag. And for some reason that just bothers you because you think that what they're saying is that you're stupid, that you don't know like that you can put the bag in the next time or that basically you're just like, why in the world are you telling me this? These are things that I know. These are things that I can do. Right. Um, And so that feeling of feeling stupid is what brings on your reaction. Right. So you feel stupid or you feel like you've let this person down. And so your reaction can be you get passive aggressive or you lash out or you're like, well, I didn't do that because, right. Or you go into like explaining yourself or defending yourself, but, or you just take it personally. Right. So in that moment when that's happening, what you're doing is you are, you're hearing what the other person's saying, but you're not attaching to the language right? You're listening. So you're in the present moment. And what you're doing is you're listening to yourself. It sounds odd, but like you're paying attention to the sensation in the body. So the sensation is welling up in the body. You start to become very familiar with what that sensation is for you. Some people like their heart pounds really fast, their hands get really sweaty. You start to feel that coming on and you're like, Oh, there it is. I know right now that I am feeling stupid. I know that I'm feeling invisible. I know that I'm feeling misunderstood. I know that I am about to lash out. I'm about to get passive aggressive. And so in that moment, you are talking to yourself and you are saying to yourself, here it is. It's coming up. I see it. I feel it. Okay. I see you. And I'm just going to breathe into you and I'm going to move you to the side. And then I'm going to come back and I'm going to say, what are my feet doing? What are my hands doing? What's my belly doing? I'm going to look at the person in front of me and I'm going to say, I want to be helpful to this person. I want to allow them to have the reaction that they want to have, right? I want to be helpful. I want to be supportive. And that's how you transition into not lashing out, not doing your default reaction, right? But here's the thing. It's not like you're not going to talk to that instance, if, for example, that is something that really bothered you and really affected you and has you like it's going over and over in your mind, the way that it was brought to you, then later you come back to it and you talk to it and you say, you know, the other night when you said the next time you take out the trash, could you refill the bag? Right. I felt stupid. Right. I know that's not what you were after, but the next time you ask me to take out the trash, right, would you be willing to just ask me to take out the trash and that's it, right? As opposed to refilling the bag, whatever it is. I know that's a simple example. Yeah, but no, but it's a good one though. That's that's a really, it's common. I mean, there's always stupid little things like that that we get into such dramatic episodes over because they trigger that 
like you said, that sense that we've had, you know, since we're kids from little traumas that happened yeah, where we feel stupid, unliked, whatever else. Right. Mm -hmm. But it really is in, in the moment it's, um, it's paying attention to the sensation that comes because yeah. that's your cue to know that you're about to move into like the emotion, right? That's going to dictate the behavior. That's a good one. I really like that. Being able to just pay attention, listen to yourself. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a really powerful right there. That's awesome. Well, what do you think? I mean, are people besides that, besides, I guess, not listening to yourself as far as communication itself, what do you think are some of the, the biggest mistakes that you see that people are usually do? I mean, obviously the listening to your, not listening to yourself, going with your emotions, that's a huge right. one, but mm -hmm. is there anything else that you, that you see? I mean, from all the things that you've done and written about? So the want to like fix, right? Mm. Want to fix people and solve problems and take on responsibilities that are not our own. Mm. Um, that's a big piece within communication. Um, and, uh, and that falls into being able to allow people um, to be as they are and to know really what your responsibility is within an interaction. And I think it's very easy not to know what our responsibility is within communication. And really, we're responsible for our words, our actions, our reactions, how we're using silence, our body language, um, our facial expressions. The other person is responsible for their actions, their reactions, their body language, how they're using silence, right? their facial expressions. And the only thing that you have in common is the health of the conversation. Like that is it. And so what happens is it's very easy for us to take on everything of the other person when it's not ours to take on. And so in communication that, I mean, when you're in interactions like that, it depletes you, right? You're not able to move the interaction forward. So if, if we can know really what our responsibility is, then we're able to have conversations that maybe we're scared to have because we understand that the other person's reaction is not ours, right? Um, we're able to allow the other person to be as they are and not want to fix or solve, right? And we know that in an interaction, if things are starting to move into like hurtful territory, that our role is to keep the integrity of the conversation intact, which means that at any point we can leave an interaction and at any point we can just say, look, this isn't helpful anymore, right? This isn't moving forward in, the, in any direction. And so, you know, it's time for us to kind of, to take a break because you know what your purpose is. And I think that that's a big, um, that's a big thing that comes up. Most of us are talking without knowing what our purpose is, what the purpose is of our language. Why is it that we are actually speaking? We have conversations about things, but things don't get resolved because there's no thought beforehand on what is the actual outcome that we want from a conversation? What is the purpose of me having this conversation? Because um, so much of it is geared in towards what happened, what hasn't happened, why this isn't happening, why it should be happening, right? And all of that, that, all it does is just keep you stuck in that place. Whereas if we shift our focus a little bit 
then you can, you can focus on what moves. So then you can focus on what you can resolve and how things can change. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that another piece is that there's a tendency to focus on the, I'm not going to say the wrong things, but it, there's a tendency to put our attention on that, which does not move. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is what keeps us stuck in the same interactions. If that makes sense. Yeah, that's really profound because it's like when you're in your trauma loops and that person's in their trauma loops, those things are stuck in your mind that way. Like when you say to yourself, for example, people hate me or I'm stupid, right? That's the loop in your mind that's just burned there from being a little kid. That's unchanging. And as long as you put your attention on that, the conversation can't move anywhere because you're both in in that same state. Whereas when you focus on you know, creative language, you know, doing basically talking in a way or communicating in such a way that you're focusing on what can we actually move? How can we, what can we do from this position? Yeah. That's, that's really profound. I like, I I like how you related to that. That's cool. I think it's hard too, because I think the other piece that you end up seeing when you start paying more attention to it is like that one person has to move, move it out of where it is. Hmm. Right. Um, and so oftentimes those who are learning this have to open the door, right? Cause you're on that hamster wheel and it's like, there's no exit. So one person has to open the door and the person learning about this is the person who has to take the high road to do that. Right. Um, and so a lot of people have the misconception that if other people aren't interacting in this way, that it can't change, that communication can't change but it really only takes one person to change a conversation because if you start changing the way that you're showing up and interacting, the other person has to change the way that they're meeting your interactions, right? They can't Mm. react in the same way to something new. That's, that's a good one too. I mean, really, because everything is on this dualistic karma type of thing. You know, you do one thing and there's a, there's a consequence type system. And so if you change yourself, then, you're right. Like there's no, there's nothing to react to. So profound stuff, man. Good stuff. Any, anything exciting coming up for you? Anything exciting? Um, well, I am thinking, any, I mean, any event, I mean, I guess not really with all the crap going on with all this stuff That's going it. on in the world. Um, what's exciting for me is every month I bring people into the intentional communication training program. Um, and that's really where I get to work with people, um, you know, in a group setting and one-to-one on changing the way that they interact, right. To really learn all of what we've been talking here. And yeah. I get really excited about that. Like, cause every month I bring in seven new students to the wow. training program. Um, and so I'm forever looking forward to, to that. Um, because to me, it's so, it's so amazing to watch it happen. Right. Um, and it's a month to, long, the program or it's 14 weeks, it's 14 long. weeks. Yeah. It's 14 weeks. It's almost three months. Wow. Um, and it's, it's really implementing this practice, right? Because so, so much of what I found when I was first kind of on this journey of trying to figure out how to feel better in the world. It it was like, I was getting all these amazing bits and pieces of information that were really wonderful, but I couldn't embody it. I couldn't, um, 
like I couldn't figure out how to implement it until I found the elements of right speech in Buddhism and still I, until this communication practice kind of created itself. Right. Um, and that's what I find with my students. They come and they're like, I, I know all the things that I should be saying and I should be doing and I should be acting like this, but actually how do I do it? Right. How do I become less reactive? How do I um, feel all this emotion and not give over to it? Like how um, do I start being kinder to the people that I love? Right. Um, and not kinder to just those that I don't know, you know? Um, and so this is really the key to it all communication. I really believe it's, it affects everything, right? It affects the way that you, um, are in romantic relationships, friendships, business relationships. It affects your health. It affects, um, your sleeping. It, I mean, it affects everything. It's true. I mean, you're in a relationship with everything, even in yourself. Yeah. So how you communicate, yeah. communication is really just the exchange of information, right? Between, yeah. between those relationships. So mm -hmm. it would stand that the quality of that exchange would be the quality of your life. You know? yeah. So, yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. 100%. yeah. What's one thing you're grateful for today? Mm. Well, I'm grateful that I get this opportunity to speak with you. Uh, this has been lovely. Um, and I am I'm grateful for my little baby girl, Raya and Holden and my husband. And um, I'm just grateful that I get to share this practice with others. It really just, um, it lights me up so much because it, it's changed my life. It's just changed my world. And um, it's brought me to such a, a more, relaxed and peaceful place and um and so if i can help others reach that place or feel that that to me is uh just divine so i'm grateful for the opportunity to give that gift <laughs> that's awesome yeah, it's been a pleasure we'll have to I'll have to get you back on the show again i love having people uh you know repeatedly throughout so yeah happy to happy to come back awesome All right, all right. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, guys, with my friend Cynthia. I hope it's inspired you to embrace mindfulness in your everyday practice. It is the skill that extends to every other area of your life. And Cynthia is an expert communicator and a mindfulness trainer. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you found meaningful advice in this episode and found something that you could share with somebody else in your life that makes a difference. If you want to get in touch with Cynthia, it's CynthiaKane.com. That's spelled C-Y-N-T-H-I-A-K-A-N-E dot C-O-M. Let's not forget our quote from the very beginning, our anonymous quote, happiness is an inside job. Whoever said this quote doesn't really matter, but it is so true. That's really all that matters is it is very true. You know, we're responsible for our own happiness. It is nobody's job to motivate you. It's nobody's job to push you other than your own. And this is the key because life is a practice. And if you don't show up for practice, then you miss out, right? Tune in next week for a little Tuesday transformation. I'm going to be interviewing motivational speaker Nathaniel Zurbereg. 
He's a German uh, speaker, very motivational guy. He's been through some crazy stuff in his life. And he has a story of perseverance and pushing through some crazy stuff that I will wait until the episode to share with you. Very inspirational, very nice guy, very genuine. Super excited to share that with you. And so on Tuesday, we're going to be doing a little bit of motivational juju as well, how to motivate yourself, how to stay motivated. Super excited. And until then, life is a dance. So go out there and dance it well. more inspiration, free resources, and bonus content, stay connected at danceoflife.com.